Well, good morning, beloveds. It's good to jump into God's Word together. So if you have your copy of Scripture, whether that's your physical Bible or your digital device, digital device, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you want to make that ready. 1 Samuel chapter 18, continuing our series. Um, so while you're making that ready, let me confess to you, if you don't know yet, I am incredibly awkward, um, but I have been even more awkward at different stages of my life. Um, not that I'm not in my most awkward stage, but um, when I was quite young, actually the age of my son, in first grade, I don't remember a lot about school in the early years, but I do vividly remember the day that I, um, as this just super quiet, terrified little boy who did not want to talk to anybody, did not want anybody to talk to me, also really wanted people to talk to me and wanted to be able to talk to people, but I was just scared to death of taking that first step of, of being vulnerable enough to like try to be friends with somebody. But there was a group of boys in the, in the room, uh, one in particular, that I really wanted to be friends with. And I just didn't know how to make that happen. And, and so I would tell my parents about this, and then something absolutely horrific happened that I should probably talk to a counselor about. But my mom one day decided to write a letter to the teacher that I had talked about it enough at home that she knew the name of one of the boys. And so she wrote a letter to the teacher and um, I, I did not know how to read yet, so I did not know what this letter said, but I knew that there was a note that I was supposed to give my teacher, and so I'm just watching my teacher read this note, being like, what's it say? What's about to happen? And my teacher then, like, there are kids all over the room doing different activities. I'm standing there in front of her, and she, like, without hesitation, just screams over the whole room. and is like, hey, Josh, Kevin wants to be your friend. Will you be his friend? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> Thank God in his mercy, Josh was like, yeah, I want to be Kevin's friend. And we became really good friends. It was awesome. Um, I joined this friend group and just, like, I remember pretending like I couldn't read things because I wanted to stay in their group. <laughs> and so it was just a great relationship all around. Uh, but man, it was rough becoming friends. Gaining new friends can be really difficult. Uh, but we're in the midst of this series, going through First and Second Samuel, and we're just kind of focusing in on some things, because in light of kind of our cultural moment, so to speak, um, we are looking at the command to be peacemakers, like Jesus has called us as followers of him to be peacemakers and to pursue hospitality. That hospitality is something that we should be actively striving for. And so uh, I want us again to just consider the isolation of this last year, the effects of this last year. And a global pandemic, none of us have lived through something like this before, and it's had an effect on us. And we should be able to talk about that honestly. I was talking with a group of pastors this past week, and one of them made a statement that just really hit me. He's like, you know, as we look at how churches are, are kind of coming out of this pandemic and just how to navigate that, how to lead well in that, we need to realize that institutional changes can happen, like the CDC can make an announcement. Like they made this announcement, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask, like you're pretty safe. Inside, outside, like you're, it's pretty safe. And so you see like this flood of reaction, just like on different levels of like, wait, can we do this and can we not do this? And so there's all this pushback and just there's excitement of like, okay, we're getting out of this. But then there's fear and like all this stuff is happening. And then like you watch how that plays out, like here we are at the school and we're still required to wear a mask when we're not socially distanced. And so, okay, so, so okay, it is, it isn't, what, what's happening, all this stuff, but what we're looking at is the reality that the CDC or the government at different levels can allow for or recommend changes, and they can happen like that. Like, the governor says, okay, you can no longer require this in these, in these publicly owned spaces and things like that, and as it's said, 
or as it's decreed, as it's signed off on, like the change happens. Changes can happen quickly in different levels, but when you look into our home, how quickly does change happen? And so when we think about our home and the the habits, the patterns, the routines that we've created over the last year of how we interact differently with people and being at home more often and all these different things, what are the things that have happened that have been shifts in our life that now we can say, okay, that's no longer necessary, and yet it's not like these external things where you can just snap and it's different. The patterns and habits that we have formed in our homes take a lot longer to change. And so we need to wrestle with what are the habits that have been formed that are not necessarily healthy? Have we grown to be different in ways that are not necessarily healthy for us? Um, Has the increased isolation and anxiety made us less trusting? Has this made us less socially vulnerable? Has this made us less known? Do we have less intimacy in our lives and our friendships? We need to wrestle with that. And so let's jump into 1 Samuel chapter 18. If we look at the start in verse one, uh, we're, we're picking up here. We actually skipped a little um, for the sake of the kids because we just have to come back to the epic story of David fighting Goliath. Um, so we'll, we'll get there, don't worry. But we're jumping ahead a little because in context, what's happening here, David has just defeated Goliath and, and he's demonstrated just this great faith in God and courage, this beautiful gospel picture. And so uh, we'll come back to that, I promise. We're gonna get there. But we're jumping into chapter 18 and look at verse one. It says, when David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. That's pretty incredible. What just happened there? David and Jonathan, who is King Saul's son. So you remember in context here, Saul, the first king of Israel, has disobeyed God. And so the prophet has told him, like, the kingdom's gonna be torn out of your hand. You are no longer the anointed king. And, and David, this little shepherd boy, the unsuspecting shepherd boy, has been anointed king. And so David has this knowledge, like, I'm the next king. And he goes and he's actually serving in the court of Saul because Saul is losing his mind. This evil spirit is harassing him. And in these fits of rage and stuff, David is there to play the liar and calm him, to soothe him. You remember how like that was great humility. And so David has this kind of like relationship now. It's where he's under the, the current king, but he knows he's the anointed king and then kills Goliath. Again, we'll come back to it. But now here he is with Saul's own son, Jonathan. And so, again, you got to think logically. Who would be the natural successor of Saul? Jonathan, right? But here's Jonathan with David, and they forged this incredible friendship. And so we have to ask, like, well, what is a friend? Like I say, I have friends. You know, anybody remember MySpace, your first friend? Tom. Hey, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> You've always been there for me. And now you look on Facebook, and I got this many friends, and like, we, we coin new terms like unfriending people, things like that. Like, but what is an actual friend? A dictionary definition of a friend is any person having affection or attachment to another person. Any person having affection or attachment to another person is a friend. 
And so if we work with that definition, we, we need to understand like there are obviously varying levels of friendship. And so psychologists actually analyze these things in different ways. And, and so there are different levels of friends. Or it just depends on who you're talking to. But everyone is in agreement that there are different levels of friendship. And so if a friend is anyone having affection or attachment to another person, let's look at David and Jonathan's relationship. How much affection is here? Well, it says that he loved him as much as he loved himself. Wow. <laughs> Do you have a friend who loves you as much as they love themselves? Are you a friend to someone else that you love them as much as you love yourself? And that language should sound very familiar to us because Jesus talked about that same idea, right? And what is the greatest command? This, this young guy's trying to trip Jesus up. He's like, well, love God with everything you are. Your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, what's well, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's David and Jonathan with that kind of affection toward each other as friends. That Jonathan loves David as much as he loves himself. Like, that is a lot of affection. This is a great friendship or attachment. If, if friendship is any person having affection or attachment to another person, and what level of friendship is this? How much attachment is there? Well, Jonathan made a covenant with David. And we don't use that term a lot in our culture, covenant. But covenant is an incredibly important idea that we see throughout scripture. In fact, you could argue that the, the backbone or the skeletal structure of all of the story of the scriptures is kind of rooted in this idea of covenant. That there's, there are these different covenants throughout the scripture. Um, and so um, when we see that, there's the Noahic covenant. That God makes this covenant with Noah. Like, hey, I'm never gonna flood the earth again like this. I'm going to actually put a bow in the sky aimed at myself, aimed up into heaven as a sign to you, as my promise. I won't do this again. You have the Abrahamic covenant. Hey, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations through your seed. I'm going to make you great, the Mosaic covenant. Hey, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. Don't do these things. If you do these things, there will be these consequences, all this stuff. There's the Davidic covenant where God makes a covenant with David as we're going to read more and more about that, hey, your throne is going to be established forever. There's this new covenant, which is what we live in. And that's what the prophets are pointing toward, particularly Ezekiel and Jeremiah use this explicit language of a new covenant that God is going to make with us, where he does every bit of it. And Jesus then, again, he comes to the table at the Last Supper and he holds up the cup and he says, this is the cup of a new covenant and my blood. And Hebrews unpacks for us the, the beauty of how that is, that Jesus is the new covenant. He is the final and full sacrifice for all time to atone for our sin for any who put their faith in him. And so God relates to man through these covenants and scripture is unpacking all of these covenants for us to understand them. But in covenants, there's this ancient practice known as cutting the covenant. And, and that is a literal cutting. Uh, it sounds awful. Like, have you ever been to one of the restaurants? Like, you go to particularly, not necessarily an American restaurant and, and you see the meat like hanging on the hooks? <laughs> Been there? And you're like, I'm gonna go eat. That's what I'm gonna eat, but it's hopefully gonna look different than that. And like, that's a little gross, weirds us out. And so the idea here is it would be gory and just kind of gruesome that in cutting a covenant, two parties come together 
and, and they have to decide what are the terms of this covenant. And then you would cut the covenant and then you would state the terms because you would actually cut animals in half and you would separate them out, kind of creating this hallway, so to speak. So the different halves of the animal that have been cut in two are on different sides and you talk through the terms of the covenant as you walk through them and it's a visual reminder that if you go against the terms of this covenant, let the party who has offended be like these animals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So David and Jonathan start their relationship with a covenant. And so you start thinking like, that's gross. That's like crazy intense. Like these guys are punk rock hardcore. This is crazy. But if a covenant is just, it's an arrangement between two parties involving mutual obligations, you want to know what the terms are of the covenant. And so David and Jonathan are starting a friendship with a covenant. They make a covenant together. It's where it is clear from the onset these are the expectations. This is how I am committed to you and how you are committed to me. And if you have heard us use the term covenant outside of one of the, the covenants of scripture, you may have heard us talk about our membership covenant. That, that everyone is welcome and beloved church, but we have membership. We have gospel partnership that is a covenant-based membership. That's because a covenant helps us to identify and know like these are the people who are for God, who are for the mission that God has given us and for each other. And so it brings clarity. It brings confidence. That as you look around and you see the members of Beloved, you know like there's a covenant binding us together. That we will fight for each other. That I am with you to the end that I love you, I have committed myself to you, and even to go all the way back to this, like, we, we can even think of, like, in that kind of, like, crazy circumstance, like, cut the covenant. Like, we understand we have obliged ourselves together, and David and Jonathan have done that together, starting with this. Or another place, I just officiated a wedding yesterday, where the vows are actually the statement of the terms of the covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And so we see the value of covenants, and God has told us and shown us over and over the importance. And now David and Jonathan start their friendship with the affection level of I love you like I love myself and the attachment of we'll make a covenant. We'll have a binding obligation to each other. And so this starts this beautiful friendship. But then you have to look on another level. Like what actually starts a friendship? Like, how do you come to a place of saying, I'm going to love you like I love myself, and, and I'll attach myself to you like we'll actually enter into a covenant together? Like, where does that actually begin? Well, it begins with trust, just like any kind of partnership. To, to be in a friendship that is real, it starts with a mutual trust. If you have no trust for someone, you will not enter into a positive relationship with them. There has to be some level of mutual trust there or it will not be a positive relationship. And trust requires vulnerability. Have you thought about that? Trust requires vulnerability. If there was no vulnerability involved, then there would be no need for trust. And so if you're going to have trust, you have to make yourself vulnerable. And Jonathan does this. What does Jonathan do as he makes this covenant with David? He takes off his robe and gives it to him. He gives him his military tunic. He gives him his sword, his bow, and his belt. And so the beauty of this is that David, this little shepherd boy who knows how to play the lyre, and yet he just killed a giant, like something about you, man. But he doesn't exactly come from good stock, so to speak. 
Like, you don't have a whole lot of, like, royal, there's no royal bloodline here. Like, who is this guy? And here's this prince saying, here, my robe, put it around you. My military tunic, like, what's going to defend me in my most vulnerable places? Here, have this. My sword, my belt, my bow, here, have it, David. And so it's honoring David. It's a beautiful way of honoring David, someone who would not be coming from such a high pedigree, so to speak. And so he's honoring him. But the other thing that is beautiful about this is that it's Jonathan making himself vulnerable. That if he has given him his military tunic and his sword, his bow, his belt, now what does Jonathan have to defend himself? In that moment, nothing. And so it's this beautiful expression of vulnerability and trust because you don't have trust without vulnerability. So Jonathan and David are starting this beautiful friendship that starts with trusting each other and becoming vulnerable. Uh, Bottom line, friendship requires trust, and trust starts with vulnerability. Friendships require trust, and trust starts with vulnerability. And and why make ourselves vulnerable? You may think, well, I'm I'm just good. (laughs) I just don't need that. Why do you need to be vulnerable? Because you're never going to experience intimacy if you're never vulnerable. You're never going to actually be known in the way that you so yearn to be known if you never allow yourself to be vulnerable. We must. David and Jonathan understood this. Their friendship demonstrates it beautifully. And and, and what's even more beautiful about their demonstrated friendship is that it's actually pointing us to a greater friend. This is a picture of the gospel the way in which Jonathan has made himself vulnerable so that there could be this trust, this this partnership, this covenant and everything points us to the greatest friend of all, Jesus. In John chapter 15, this is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. Jesus has been going on and just saying such beautiful things, teaching his disciples. Um, But this is what he says in, in John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like that friendship? Like there's this, wait, there's this way of having love on par with the way I love myself, and now he's saying the way I have loved you, you love one another, and then verse 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Here, have everything that could protect me and spare my life. I give it to you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. Jesus called his disciples friends. Jesus, who is the eternal God, God the Son, takes on humanity, born in great humility, lives a sinless life, comes to the night of his betrayal and with his closest friends in the room, reminds them, I call you friends. You're not just servants. I'm calling you friends. And he points to all of what David and Jonathan are picturing for us. This is friendship, is to actually be vulnerable. It's to have trust. And what is it that saves us? It's faith, which in a contemporary English term would be like trust. And he's saying, look, like, no one knows love greater than this, that a friend would lay down his life for his friends. And what did Jesus do for us? As our friend calling us friends, he then now marches to his death. 
He lays down his life for us. The incarnation of the Son of God that he put on humanity, making himself vulnerable to feel what we feel as humans, to sympathize with us in all of our weakness, and yet never sin. To be our true champion, Jesus. The ultimate place of vulnerability as the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the name above every other name, that he entered into this vulnerable place and calls us friends, laying down his life for us. What a friend. There is no better friend than Jesus. See his vulnerability so that we can know him. It's the gospel. It's the good news. He loves us. He is the ultimate friend. And so, look, if, if you can get that, if you can see the way in which Jesus is our friend and how he made himself vulnerable to us and how that secures us in our everlasting friendship with God himself, that he has made it right. And now I am at peace with God. The peace that that gives us will now translate into a peace to where you can be vulnerable with others. If nothing can phase my relationship with God, that you cannot rob me of God who is my joy, God who is my peace. You cannot break what he has done. Then now I have the freedom to actually step into vulnerable places, to actually be known by you, to open up my life and say, let's be real friends. Like, real friends. Let's start this with a mutual trust. I'll make myself vulnerable. Make yourself vulnerable. Let's actually know each other and live in love for God and each other. Like, that level of affection, that level of attachment is only procured by the gospel, seeing the truth of God and letting that permeate our life. And this is the heart of our vision invitation. You know, we're always talking about belong, be known, be loved. It's this idea that everybody really wants to belong somewhere. Like since the exile from Eden and then you watch how there's exile after exile after exile throughout scripture and and we're just longing to be in a place where we belong. In every scenario, you want to know, like you're always asking, do I belong here? I want to be in a place where I belong. And what we really want in belonging somewhere is intimacy. We want to be known. We want to be part of it. We want to be known. And yet our fear is because we are all broken humans who fail. We don't meet God's standards. We don't even meet our own standards. And so our fear is, if you actually know me, then I won't belong anymore. And so we run around with these masks, these facades, like, ah, no, like, just see this. But the beauty of the gospel is we are loved by God, the one who knows every bit of us. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He knows us through and through, and he still says, I love you. And so if I am known by God, and he still loves me, then what do I need to hide anything from you? Why do I need to to put on these masks? Why? I don't need to, because my peace, my confidence is in God and his love for me, and so now I can extend that to you. Hey, you can tell me, and I can tell you anything. We're all broken. We can be vulnerable, Because our confidence is rooted in God and his love for us. And he says, you do belong. I know you all the way. There's nothing hidden from me. And I love you. And so now you can do that for others. The gospel frees us to this kind of friendship, to this kind of relationship. Because we are friends with God, we can be friends with each other. We can befriend the most unfriendly person in the world. Because what can they do to us? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't mean there won't be hurt. Making yourself vulnerable will lots of times end in a lot of hurt. But the hope of the gospel is it doesn't have to actually end there. You can work through it. And we're gonna unpack more and more of that as we go through these weeks, um, but, but see the beauty of the gospel and how it helps us to know there is no better friend than Jesus and now he has freed me to have peace, to make myself vulnerable and known to others. I wanna show you, this is typically done in counseling. This is known as the Jahari window. Um, we're gonna pop that up here. Um, it's just a beautiful paradigm for us to kind of see just this, this reality that scripture is actually speaking to. And so in these quadrants, what you have is um, you have the open area and this is a healthy place that you are known to others and known to yourself. That's a great place to live, right? There's freedom in that. And Jesus was constantly telling us, like, live in the light. Like, don't hide in darkness. Like, live in the light. And so, but, but the thing is, we can be known to others and not known to ourselves, and that's why we need friends, because we could have blind spots. That every one of us, that's what one of the beauties of covenant membership is, is us saying like, look, I'm opening up my life, speak into my life, hold me accountable. Have a disciplined practicing partner, have someone that you can share with, and they can actually step in and say, now that's jacked up, don't do that, don't treat your wife like that, don't do this, like, hey, stop and encouraging each other with the gospel, spurring each other onto love and good works because we have blind spots. Um, scripture is constantly talking about how sin is deceptive. Like most of our sin that we live in, we're totally unaware of it because it's blinding. And so we need to be known by others because otherwise we're not known to ourselves. They can point out the blind spots or we mean not known to others and, and that's how we walk around so often with this hidden area or this facade, these masks like, oh, well, I'm known to myself but I'm not gonna let anybody else in here. That's not healthy because that leads us again to we have blind spots or we could be over here that we're not known to others and consequently, we're not even known to ourselves. That we're just unknown. Yeah, I've told you before, and I don't know who started this, it's not original to me, but like, if it's not really me, if I'm hiding anything about myself, as I interact with you, then do you really love me? Or do you just love this masquerade of me? You want to actually be loved like you, right? And that means we have to be vulnerable. We have to take the risk of saying, okay, here I am know me. And we can do that because of the gospel, that God gives us the confidence, the freedom to make ourselves vulnerable, to take this risk and open up our life and see the beauty of Christian community, the church being the church, when you live in that kind of freedom to be open and vulnerable, to be real friends. So um, having said that, I also want you to see this is not an unreasonable risk. This is not just saying like, oh, you know what? Open yourself up for anybody to just cut you down in any way they want to. No, this is actually a reasonable calculated risk. David and Jonathan knew of each other because at this point in the story, both of them have now demonstrated that they have put their trust in God. And that's in the face of danger and opposition that they have put their trust in God. And so you can watch what happens in people's lives in moments particularly of crisis, see what comes out of them. And that gives you a really good idea of, well, is it safe or is it not safe? But either way, you're going to have to take a risk and make yourself vulnerable. But don't do that in an unreasonable way. We can do that in a reasonable way. And then for you, kind of like you hear for couples all the time, the best thing you can do preparing for marriage is focus on you. 
Make sure you're going to be a good spouse. If you're focused on that, then you'll probably wind up running lanes with the same kind of person who's going to be a great spouse as well. And so similarly, you want to have good friends? Be a good friend. Be a great friend. What do you do in times of crisis? Where do you turn? Where do you look? Where is your trust placed? Is it in the Lord? It will, it will be demonstrated in your life. So choose someone. Commit to the time. Commit to the energy that it's going to take. And just know like, it's, it's a lot like love. How does love grow? And trust is similar with time, with proximity, being close to each other, and with experiences. And so commit to the time it takes. You want your home group to really just flourish, take off. It's going to take time. Be in each other's life. Be close. Proximity. Live together. Enjoy things. Have experiences. Those things grow trust. But it's not always going to be easy. But if there's a strong foundation, like a covenant, where it's, it's based on love for God and now for each other, then that can stand. That can stand through the storm. So make sure that your friendships are based on a solid foundation. Make them centered on Christ. Talk about him. Enjoy him. Work together for the things that God has called you to. Enjoy things. And my wife and I, we love, like our favorite thing to share with couples when we do marriage coaching is that if you want to be really good and your, and your spouse, like just have a wonderful marriage, then be really good friends. And you know what friends do? They have fun. Have fun together. Friends have fun together. Have fun. And so as we conclude, I hope for you, is will you live at peace in light of the gospel, so at peace, so at peace, that you can take healthy relational risks and you can be vulnerable so that you can truly be known and truly be loved as you truly know and truly love others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love. Jesus, that, that you love us as our friend in such a way that you did lay down your life for us. Thank you. God, that you have given us wisdom in your word and examples like David and Jonathan to look to and know what it looks like to be in healthy friendships. So God, as we come out of a year where friendships have largely suffered, where we have become more isolated and less trusting, God, we, we, we repent of that. And God, we don't, we don't blame anyone for that ourselves in ways that we, we should justly. But God, we, we just want to look to you and your gospel and what it's calling us to is beautiful. Uh, to be people who are known and loved because you know us and you love us. So help us to do that for each other and to even take risks, to start new friendships. And God, let it ultimately be all about pointing to you as the ultimate friend, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name.